Welcome back, everyone, to the Anagram Journey with the Anagram Godmother, Suzanne Stabile. This is episode 78, and it is the first of a two-part series with Anagram 9, Billy Shuey, where he and Suzanne are going to talk about the Anagram and education and teaching and parents and teachers. It's for anyone who has anything to do with school, except for probably the kids. One of the things that Billy says in this episode that I really love as a seven and can relate to, he talks about how threes can play school and sevens cannot play school. Uh, They have a lot of stance talk. This one is stance heavy and they answer some of your questions and Billy gives a fantastic introduction to what he's doing with the Enneagram and education and teachers. Uh, And if you like what you hear, Billy is going to be teaching Know Your Number in Dallas on March 21st. The early bird registration for that is over. However, uh, if you use the promo code TEJBILLY, the Enneagram Journey Billy, TEJBILLY at checkout, you can still get the early bird price. So sign up and go hear him talk and razz him about these two podcasts and ask him as many questions as you can because that is what he is there for. As always, thank you all for listening and we hope you enjoyed today's episode and be sure to come back for episode 79 which will be part two with more Billy and Suzanne answering your questions about and around education and the Enneagram. Just pretend you're a rock star. (laughs) (laughs) I remember seeing kids who knew how to work their parents. Little kids that didn't know what they were doing, but it was working. And every little sniffle, you know, because after, after a point they're acting out and in class so the teacher yeah. has to do something about it because it's affecting everybody so step one phase one was get out of class success mm-hmm. phase two was get in the nurse's office and the nurse is like he's fine but you know what do i do with him and then it was well let's call the parent and then once the parent said oh my gosh my baby and then they came up there uh-huh. it's like phase two complete successful mission Boom. but i remember parents you know, the, the really good ones would say, Mr. Shree, I'm not coming to get him. Like, I can't get off work, and he's fine. He needs to get his little butt back yeah. in class. I'd be like, all right, let me hand the phone right. to him, and you tell, tell him, him that. that. Yeah. And they were like... I think the best way to start this episode is for Billy to give his background in education. When I was thinking about it yesterday, getting ready for this, I remember being at South Grand Prairie, and... The guy that was dating my sister was the substitute. And I always loved that. You were a substitute there. Wow, I didn't I don't remember that. I didn't know that. That's great though. And yes, you I don't did. remember seeing me I in guess, the, I, I would I like didn't. search you out. I know I feel bad. Man. <laughs> Sorry. All right, so we're learning something about oh, and you're a nine, so putting that together. Yeah. Yeah, he didn't even remember who you were. So he was in the class <laughs> he was in the classrooms more than I was. So. That's also true. <laughs> There's a chance that you didn't see him. You, Billy, didn't see Joel. I had my head down. I was working really hard uh-huh. to get the job. No. I was seeing lots of girls at that time. <laughs> I don't know all their brothers. Don't know. Don't know. <laughs> yeah, okay. I would love to give a background. So I graduated, had a bachelor's degree, and then sort of, I guess, in not atypical nine fashion, just kind of floated around for a few years after that, deciding what it is that I wanted to do. And thought about education. So I thought the best way to ease into education is to substitute teach, just to get a feel for what it's like in the classroom and 
to how to interact, you know, on a campus and decide, you know, if that's something that I want to do. So I did. I took jobs in elementary, middle and high school just to just to see and realized fairly early on that just being around the energy that kids produce and understanding sort of the fundamental value of education was something that I really wanted to be a part of. So went back to school to get a teaching certificate, um, found a job as a teacher in a, in a charter school as an elementary school teacher. Um, and that was an interesting time because the charter school where I worked was going through some changes. And so I taught for one year and then the next summer they called and asked if I wanted, uh, an administrative position. So that sounded kind of odd, but it sounded like a promotion. So I didn't want to turn it down. So I took it, ended up being a testing coordinator slash jack of all trades in the administrative office for a couple of months before, um, November rolled around and the superintendent came by one day and said, Billy, you're going to take over for a third grade teacher that we had to let go today. This was Monday on Friday. We're going to let that principal go. You're going to fill in on an interim basis until we find the principal. And so, um, again, I didn't want to say no, so I said yes. And then um, about eight years later, I was still a principal. And then some things happened there, and I ended up moving on from being a principal and took a job um, as a consultant at the Region 11 Service Center for about five years. And now I'm at the University of Texas at Dallas. So lots of different roles in education and still holding firm to the fact that I want to be in education because I love it. That is so interesting for me to hear because I've been around for all of that. But when you string it all together, it's everything is more years than I thought it was. Like that's a lot of years to be a principal. Yeah. In an elementary school, in a charter school where a lot of kids had more needs than just to be educated. Yeah, it was terrifying because I, I didn't think, know what I was doing, but I was starting to figure it out. Yeah. yeah. And maybe that's the best way to figure it out. I don't, I don't know how education courses would prepare you for the different experiences that you've had in education, but I can see how the Enneagram would. Absolutely. So you've known the Enneagram since you were? 19. 19. Mm-hmm. On the way to Colorado, right? Is that when we did that? Yep. You want to go on vacation? You're going to learn the Enneagram. That's right. (laughs) I told people this the other day. I I remember what the mountains looked like out the front of the car because you were sitting in the passenger seat and I was kind of in one of the front seats in the back and you were, you just turned around and said, Hey, let me tell you guys about what I'm working on. And then you started reading off nines and I didn't know what the Enneagram was and I didn't know what a nine was. But I thought you were talking about me specifically. That's and crazy. And how that was a, just a, a life-changing moment for sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I knew the minute I heard twos. I knew it instantly. So one of the things that I... Uh, I just want to throw in that I knew the minute y'all started talking about it that I wanted to be doing something else. <laughs> <laughs> On you, that trip. You were probably yeah. asleep. You were asleep. Yeah. I feel sure you just went back to sleep. <laughs> So you know that I get questioned a lot about parenting in the Enneagram. And you also know that I pushed back on that for a long, long time. But I've always been intrigued 
about education in the Enneagram. And so I'm going through some stuff in my head about why was I okay with thinking it would be really good in education, particularly elementary education, if people were trained and knew how to recognize certain characteristics in children. And yet I was pushing back in terms of at home. And I, I want to point out that I think it's really important to note that I know more Enneagram than you do, but you know far more about education than I do. And I think the key to all of this is you knowing far more about education because you can be me and not be good at using the Enneagram in the classroom or in education. So I don't think the criteria is being me. I think the, the primary criteria is you and your background. So talk a little bit about how you think it can be used, how you think people should be trained for it to be used that way, and talk about the values. And then I, all along I kind of want to be able to ask you some questions. Sure. Well, I think a decent way to start is to bring up that so I'm finishing my doctorate and um, it's in education administration, and I'm on about my fourth iteration of my dissertation. And I think it all has happened for a reason. And so the latest one is um, exploring personality traits of teachers and its effect on student achievement. And honestly, if I can be totally honest, the reason why I want to do that is because I want to utilize the Enneagram to, as the tool for studying teacher personality right. traits. And, um, I know it's the right thing to do only because I've been doing research so far. Studies have been done on teacher personality traits, utilizing things like Myers-Briggs right. Briggs or, um, the big five personality model. And not a lot has been done on the Enneagram. I haven't been able to find anything that's been able to connect those two together. Um, so I'm excited to continue to do that research and see what I find out. When I am working with the Enneagram and, and teaching whenever I am or talking with people, I try to continue to bring it back to the fact that it is geared toward understanding yourself and others, which would lead to compassion of yourself and others. And that can be applied in many different arenas, education being one of them. I think we do really good work in understanding students learning styles understanding the behaviors of students and then assigning consequences or providing reward systems i think we do a good job of being pretty thorough and kind of measuring efficacy of teachers sort of the, the pedagogical acumen of teachers right. like do this and it will yield this result and it's right. always geared towards the abcs of teacher practice mm -hmm. but you don't see a lot of things that um, measure teacher personality traits. And that seems like an untapped area where if we were to study it, it really could maybe be a breakthrough or at least provide some insight on how to understand yourself as a teacher and working with a group of, you know, young people who all have different personality traits. And, and I think the nuts and bolts of teaching can only take you so far. Right. I think in order to kind of get over some of those barriers, understanding something like the Enneagram could help. 
I absolutely agree with all that. And I, th- I think, I think compassion is a byproduct also for teachers to be good to one another and to seek help from one another uh, in how to deal with a kid who's a, a conundrum to them, who's not like other kids that they've taught. Is that true, do you think? Yeah, I think that's a good point. I, I think when you're talking about high schools, you're talking about department level right. teams. And when you're talking about elementary schools, you're talking about grade level teams. Right. And you have to have a team. I don't know that a lot of people think about that. I mean, you you send your kid off to school and your kid has a certain teacher right. and you deal with that teacher. Well, that teacher is just one person and you have to have a team. And so I think when when you're planning or when you're strategizing on how to get through to a kiddo mm-hmm. or you're dealing with a, you know, a parent, um, being able to operate on a team is important. And um, understanding each other's Enneagram numbers when you're working together on mm-hmm. a team is absolutely mm-hmm. helpful. It's it's. It's the same as understanding your team members uh, in in a corporate setting, sure, or or in a in a in a church setting, and maybe more important, even maybe even more important than in a corporate setting because other children, the children are affected, parents are involved. It's like there's a lot going on. Yeah, and I would also say that. It, it had been a long time since I've been in a classroom, but yeah. I went back and um, Sam's school has a really cool program where dads can come and volunteer for a day. Yeah. And I went a, few, a couple of months ago and you, they, you do a number of different things throughout the day. And so I was helping with lunch and all lunch class or all grade levels came through and it hit me like a ton of bricks when I was in there for um, the kindergarten session, uh-huh. right? Cause you've got a couple of teachers who are in there monitoring lunch and you have a couple who have some time off like to breathe and uh-huh. take a deep breath. And you have five and, year olds with food. And it, so these teachers weren't, they weren't, they weren't just sitting with, with themselves and having right. an adult conversation. Right. And you know, they were walking around opening milk cartons. Right. They were walking around peeling cellophane off of the lunch trays. Right. They were cleaning up a spill. They were, saying, yes, you can go to the bathroom. No, you can't. And you can't, you have to wait till they, I mean, they were working. My point in saying all that is they're on from Uh 7am to 4pm. You know, a lot of us take for granted when whatever jobs we have that aren't in education, where you can take a lunch break and you can talk to adults about adult things and you can go in your office and just be quiet for 15 minutes. And a lot of these teachers don't do that. And so they're in their personalities, I think, a lot more than a lot of the rest of us are. And that's what makes that even more helpful to understand their Enneagram number and other teachers' Enneagram numbers so that they can continue to kind of find that center point within sure. themselves and go, I'm I'm gonna be okay. I'm I'm stressed out right now and right. I you know, I'm going ninety miles per hour. But because of who I am and because of that knowledge and that wisdom that it has to offer, they can kind of take care of themselves a little bit better and the other teachers on their team. It's very interesting to me. We're sitting here with a aggressive stance person, a dependent stance person, and a withdrawing stance person. And I, I can imagine times when I, as the feeling type, would get so caught up in a kid that I'm trying to help who... It's just not working. And being able to say to the two of you, if we were a teaching team, 
I don't know what this little guy needs, but right now I'm, I'm done. I don't, I don't have any more gifts to offer. Can you help? And a different perspective would make all the difference, I think. And with different gifts and different graces and all, all of that, that would be possible if we were utilizing, I think this little boy needs this at this time. And I don't have that to give. Absolutely. I I think that's a great point. Um, not that hiring would depend on that. I'm not suggesting that. And, and I'm just saying, if if you are hired on for all the reasons that you should be, and in that reality you find yourself in this place where uh, you are a team with diverse gifts, and you will be regardless of Enneagram number, then how can that be utilized? And if you don't know that about one another, you don't know to work in that way as a team. It seems like that's a great example of how as a team knowing each other's gifts and specifically the Enneagram number. So if teacher Suzanne, mom lady, uh, goes <laughs> I, I to, hope you get as many <clears throat> names as I have, Billy goes to the other twos that are in the team, mm-hmm. probably going to kind of come up with the same That's right. response. And then I think the child is at a disadvantage because then, then the, the, I think how many times does onus get put on the kid of these three teachers who really support the way they do things have all come up with, have come up dry. And so I'll get where instead you can go to right. a, a different stance and say, what, here's what's going on. I'm at a loss at this point. What do you suggest? What do you see? What's a different way to come at that? I think that's a good point. And I think uh, it happens in, in schools all over that, uh, you know, the, the adage, it takes a village. I mean, I, I think they really do that. I think there are, you know, the, the softer, kind heart, more kind hearted teacher who's having an issue with an unruly child will send him across the hall to the one that's really tough. And I, so they're doing that in some degree anyway, they're, they're playing off of each other's strengths and compensating for each other's areas of improvement. I think taking it a step further and ascribing a language to all of that, you know, i.e. an Enneagram, their Enneagram number and their stance and all of that helps make that even more effective. I think I love that phrase, compensating for your area of improvement. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't want to say weakness. I'm afraid I'm going to hear that that for a while. So uh, we just happen to have the experience of uh, teaching in a community where a whole elementary school, every, every person in the school, every adult knows their Enneagram number. I can't, um, and, and when they told me that, I haven't had chills in a long time where, where I heard something and kind of the hair stood up on the back of my neck, and that happened, and I thought, oh, my gosh, those are the luckiest kids on the planet. Because I think when you don't know anything about the Enneagram, you um, tend, one tends to have false beliefs about what a child can do and what they can't do. And I think we ask dependent and withdrawing children to be aggressive. You know, like if a little kid says they're picking on me and making fun of me on the playground and a teacher says, you just need to be stronger. Well, some numbers don't have that in them, right? And not ever talking about what number the children are 
you would know that as a teacher to say a variety of things, not just that. Absolutely. It's similar to Enneagram and parenting in that when, when a situation comes up with my own children, the first thing I think about is, well, when I was a kid and I experienced that situation, this is how my parents handled That's that. Right. So I have all these frames of reference, but they all deal with just me. Yep. Well, my kid isn't my Enneagram number. This isn't last century and I'm not my dad. Are so, we going to start calling it the last century now? Good I grief. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm all about, and, man, that just made me feel like I arrived in a covered wagon today. I think also in your example, you know, the kid comes up and says this. I'm often recognizing what's not being said and what's not being shared. Right. Yeah. It's right. not just the, right. okay, how can I address this, but. What's behind this? Yeah. Yeah. So, and I want to go back a minute, Billy, because one thing we work really hard to do, all of us who teach here, is to say the Enneagram's great, but it's not everything. And it's usually better with other understandings. So if we go back to you giving the example from last century, (laughs) when it was about you, you're an only child. That's an important thing. You're a nine on the Enneagram. That's an important thing. Um your parents are probably from the same triad. That's an important thing. Like there's a lot going on that colors things. And so the Enneagram is just one more tool that we're offering and that you have all the gifts and graces to offer to folks to say, let's add this, not this replaces anything else, not it's more important than other stuff. It's just another thing to put in your toolbox that helps you take better care of yourself, work better with your colleagues, and be better to and for the children. Agreed. I'm, I, my four children are all so different. You know them well. Right. They're all four different numbers. They're all very different from one another. Your two sons are opposite numbers, and they're very different from one another. It's a thing. It, it matters. Absolutely. We, we talk about it all the time in education about the ability for teachers and how important it is for them to differentiate learning because you have different individuals in these classrooms and some do a better job of others. And quite frankly, that's, that's a really difficult task. I mean, just if you're an elementary school teacher and you're self-contained, you have 22 students in your class, even, I mean, the possibility, you might have 22 different possibilities of, Uh, or combinations of learning styles and just trying to differentiate 22 different things all the time every day is impossible. Mm-hmm. But the idea behind the the thought is some kids are audio learners. Some kids are visual learners. Mm-hmm. Some kids are tactile. Some kids need tougher love than others. Some kids need you to kind of hold their hand a little bit more than mm-hmm. the others. And all of those kind of speak to exactly what the Enneagram kind of offers. And so mm-hmm. it's exactly what you just said. All of those things are important to note adding knowing your own Enneagram number, possibly the Enneagram numbers of your kiddos in your classroom, at least their stances can, again, like you said, add one more tool in the toolkit that might, you know, kind of send things to a new level in a good way. Yeah. You know, if, if I, if I didn't know the Enneagram, I can see me going after the kid who at recess, is it still called recess? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) 
going after the kid at in recess. The, in this century, it's called recess. Thank you. It's called an area of not yeah. sitting still <laughs> during the day. So I can imagine me as a two, as, as a two elementary school teacher. And I can see me going after the kid who's off by himself or herself to bring them into the group when they're in the withdrawing stance and all they want is 20 minutes alone, right? I, I would be, that's who I would be. Okay, this is a good lead-in to one of our first questions that was submitted on Instagram, and thank you all for doing that. You can find, if you're not following Suzanne on Instagram, at Suzanne Stabile, uh, and also, while you're there, go ahead and search up at Anagram Parents, and you'll find Joey and Billy. Uh, but one of the questions that was put in is, uh, can you help us know what key things or situations to watch for to help discover the kid's stances? So that was a that was a perfect example of one thing you could look for for that. And w since we started with a withdrawing stance example, can y'all both throw some things about the withdrawing stance? Fours, fives, and nines. Sure. Uh so fours, fives, and nines, the most important thing I would say is fives have a limited amount of energy every day as children, not just as adults, and every contact they have with another human being costs them some of that energy. So they literally just get more and more tired as the day goes and more and more anxious to be in some space where there's not so many people. Nines have the least energy of all Enneagram numbers. So those are those, that's two of the three who really need a lot of personal space and who are not aggressive and who are not joiners. And then you have fours that are the most complex number on the Enneagram. And they generally don't know what they want as children other than belonging. And so they're over connecting or making too many attempts to connect with other kids. When you see those patterns of behavior, those are children who need to be treated differently. What would you say, Billy, is the way to work with those kiddos? I think for the withdrawing stance, kiddos, um, uh, having some latitude with them um, to sort of be who they are. So the withdrawing stance numbers, they just take a little bit longer to get there, wherever there is. Um, they process a little bit s slower. And if you push too much, then they all can be pretty stubborn and that can end up being counterproductive. And so um, I think with that latitude, they'll all get there and they'll understand and trust sort of the process. Mm -hmm. So if they've got an adult in their life, if I'm a five kid and you as my parent understand that and you let me be alone when it's appropriate to be alone, then I trust the fact that you're going to allow me to know when it's appropriate to be with people mm -hmm. and understand what it takes for me to get there and mm -hmm. how, you know, how much risk sort of that it involves knowing that I'm going to have time to be by myself when it's appropriate mm -hmm. to build back up my energy level. And then I think just kind of taking a step back and viewing just the stance as a whole. Mm -hmm. um, if you're trying to identify a stance, maybe 
you could just kind of observe how they, um, their sort of first instinct or reaction to any certain situation. So four or five and a nine isn't going to be the first one to jump up with an opinion. They aren't going to have a quick idea and want to share it with you. They aren't going to take action, right? They're in the doing repressed stance. So something happens, they're the ones that sort of take a little step back and look at it and mm -hmm. analyze it and observe it, sort of wonder why it happened. And then maybe they come back around eventually to kind of do something about it. So that's, that's an example of a way that you can maybe identify. Yeah, sounds awesome. Yeah, and I, I think we can just say, and then people will have this to walk away with in their pockets, that people in the withdrawing stance move away from people. People with the dependent in the dependent stance move toward people, and people in the aggressive stance stand independently. So th that's a that's a clue walking into any group of people anytime. And I had to learn when people were moving away from me, not to just follow them. You know, I'm I am such an extroverted too that if you take a step back, I just take another step toward you. Like I, I had to real really learn that that's one of the biggest things that i've that i've learned from the enneagram with one of our kids we think is in the withdrawing stance and we know that will is in the withdrawing stance mm -hmm. and when they withdrew will and i really close of course my children close when they withdrew i went after them and i think another thing to look for is i think people can be guilty of seeing uh an action and then we respond to it, but then don't pay attention to their response to our response. Yep. And their response every time, it never improved. And it until I started looking that of what what am I getting back? Yeah, and I think also too that we all we the majority of the time, I think the majority of us look at the behaviors that we all right. are engaged in and we we fail to take it a step further and try and recognize the motivation behind the behavior. And that causes some confusion and some yeah. misunderstanding. And I think that's such a good point, Joel, because when people are busy, which we all are all the time, it seems, I think what happens is the only response you pay any attention to is there, did they follow your direction, your desire, your command and not, after they follow it, then what do they do next? That's a, that's really a good point because kids follow direction or insistence frequently. And then when the moment's over, they go right back to doing what they were doing. That's a thing. Dependent stance. So I think the thing that we need to look at in the dependent stance is that they're thinking repressed. And so the first thing I want to say is for the whole stance, don't say to children, what were you thinking? Because in that stance, it's very messy. And then they're thrown for the rest of the conversation that you have with them. Um, so in the dependent stance, we have a one, a two, and a six. And the thing that is really important with ones is you are one voice, and when your voice is critical, they have a critical voice in their head that magnifies whatever you said at least 10 times. 
They don't receive criticism well, and they respond either with aggression or with shame. And neither one is a good response in terms of what's possible. It's a natural response, but it's not what could be. Um, One's also, one of the things I really noticed with one of the grandchildren is that when he made a mistake, like in first grade, if he, uh, he didn't like to erase because of oneness. So he would start over and start over and start over. There's a lot going on in this stance with human beings trying to make their way, no matter what their Enneagram number is with twos. And I, I would say that I think a good way to look at this is twos in elementary school are usually tattling and it's because they're aware of everything that goes on relational, relationally, and they're picking up the feelings of everybody. So I they, love the response to yesterday's Instagram post, uh, all the twos were saying, yeah, I just, I need to work on staying in my lane. <laughs> exactly. That's it. And that's it in the little bitties too. So the way they express that is they tattle and then they, it either works and everybody follows their lead then, or it doesn't work. And they feel like they're responsible to take care of the kid because the adults didn't. It's fascinating to watch that. And twos uh, are overwhelmed by feelings and certainly don't know what to do with them in any age level in school because it's going to cost you to be overwhelmed by feelings in any age level. And uh, sixes don't trust themselves. And I'm not sure, Billy, I'd love to hear you talk about it, how you teach somebody to trust their own discernment at a young age. But I know that you're going to have a way. (laughs) And I think it's super important for people to pay attention to because that not trusting yourself in sixes really builds on itself. And I think we're patronizing to two of the numbers in this stance. We're patronizing to ones when we say it's good enough when it isn't for them. And my solution there and I'm sure you can add to it, is to say, instead of it's good enough, how can I help you have this be what you want it to be? That seems to be a magical question with ones, no matter what their age is. I feel like looking back at my time in school, I must have been only with ones and sixes in group projects. Because all I remember saying is, it's right. You can trust me. I don't need to show the work. It's right. We'll we'll get this. Mm-hmm. And it's good enough. Let's move on. Yeah. 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 Group projects for children are painful for children. <laughs> but the other thing I want to say about sixes is just imagine a nine-year-old uh, getting ready for school and not trusting themselves that they did their homework right, that they're wearing the right clothes, that they're going to have a friend when they get there. Like I, there's a vulnerability in sixes that I don't think is found anywhere else in the Enneagram. A lot of it has to do with fear. Yeah. To, to tag on to sixes, we, um, I coach baseball, coach wills baseball team. And we're pretty sure that we have a six on our team. And wills an eighth grader for people who don't know. Thank you. Yeah. And, um, 
one of the ways that we, uh, David and I coach together, um, that we kind of try to meet this kiddo where he is, is by taking all the time he needs when it's appropriate to answer all of his questions and then to show our thinking, our whole entire pattern of thinking and logic behind the answers to the questions that we give. And it's, it's a simple exercise, right? It usually has, has to do with, hey, coach, what are we going to do at practice today? Mm-hmm. Are we going to scrimmage? Are we going to do this? Are we going to do this? Are we going to do this? And I remember some of the coaches that I had growing up where you just didn't ask questions. Right. Like you were subordinate and you were a little punk if you yeah. just asked questions because it was implied that you were questioning the coach's ability to right. do whatever he was doing, right? right? So what we do is... Well, in the last century... I would point out that the, 19th century. Uh, the answer of what are we doing today was, you'll know when we do it. Right. You'll do what I tell you to do That's when right. I tell you to do it. And if you don't, I'll find someone who can. Yep. Right. Sounds yeah. like somebody's like, parenting style that I recall also. <laughs> really? You have a friend who had parents who used that? <laughs> so, so with this particular kiddo, and I think this is just, it's a good practice for those of us that work with six kids is we... Number one, it keeps us on our game. Like we don't just show up and go, I'm not really sure what we're going to do today. We haven't right. thought about it yet. That doesn't look good for a six who wants to know the information. Right. Plus it just shows a lack of preparation, which in general isn't good. Well, if you actually are prepared, then just say, this is what we're going to do. We're going to do this in these time segments and here's why. Mm-hmm. And then we're going to take a break and then we're going to come back and do this in these time segments and here's why. And if there, you know, and then also along the way, you know, if you have any input, we actually kind of. Let that happen because, mm-hmm. you know, they're thinking about it productively and unproductively. So it's nice to let them kind of verbalize that and then walk that with them and see, yeah, we, that's a good idea. Maybe we can do that. Or no, I don't know that we should do that. And here's why. And if you're bringing in logic to it and, and sometimes when you're actually able to do the things that the six kind of wants to do, took mm-hmm. a lot of courage for them to kind of speak up and say that because you ask them what they thought. And if they verbalize it, then that was one particular thought that they trusted. Yeah. And if you can, if it's an opportunity to that. go with it, yeah, then it kind of builds up that level of trust within themselves kind of slowly, but surely maybe. So I, I want, before parents start going after coaches, I want to say <laughs> that you and David are a nine and a four. You both know the Enneagram. You've known it for a long time. And you're both in education. So, uh, you know, volunteer coaches who don't have that background, my, my input is that a really good place to start is with the Enneagram because you can get it and then it shows itself to you. Once you know the Enneagram, if you read about it and you study it and you listen to podcasts, then it shows itself to you. You don't have to go get it. And th- that that's a big thing. I also think that you're going to have lots and lots of sixes. And you got ones that have to do things perfectly. Then you add a layer of parents who have demands for the kid and the teacher. And that's, that's just a potential way to get sidetracked mm-hmm. if you're using the Enneagram in relationship to teaching the children. Absolutely. I, but I don't know how you'd, once you know the Enneagram, I don't know how you'd step aside from, 
I'm really doing what I think is best for these kids who are all in the dependent stance. They need a lot from all of us as teachers. They need a lot from other kids. They need a lot. And sometimes we have it to give and sometimes we don't. And then parents who expect you to have it to give. Right. Right? Right. Dependent numbers at any age, K through 12, need a lot from other people. I would agree. Um, Let's talk about a stance that doesn't need as much. (laughs) (laughs) Would that be yours, Joel? (laughs) Three sevens and eights. I'm going to start by saying I think three sevens and eights get in a lot of trouble because ones, twos, and sixes tattle on them. (laughs) 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 While fours, fives, and nines watch. Mm-hmm. That, I think that's the overall picture <laughs> of the playground. <laughs> yeah. And I also think that um, threes have a plan for the day for school by the time they leave home. By the time they go to bed the night before, they know what they're going to wear. They know what they're going to do when they get to school. They have their idea of how the day's going to go. So threes, threes have planned everything. And interestingly enough, I think it often goes according to plan. I think they read people well enough that the day kind of goes like they think it's going to. But I think that gives them a false sense or illusion of being in control in more than they're in control of. They are real good at being in control of themselves, n- not so good at controlling other people. So I think that's a false sense of security for them. Sevens, I think, get a bad rap as uh, at any grade level because along with these other two numbers, along with threes and eights, they think really fast and they have a half range of emotions. And what I've come to believe in the last five days is that when you think fast and you don't deal with feelings well, you end up with a gap there. That means you are sometimes awkward with your thinking or with your feelings because they don't, that they're not equal to one another. Some people would call that uh, social immaturity. I've called it that before, but I don't think that's what it is. I don't think sevens are necessarily immature socially. I think they have a gap between feelings and how fast they think. I know, com- you, I know you haven't done eights yet, right. but I, I think I just wanted to add something here to deal with threes and sevens at school, just based on what you just said. And Joey and I find ourselves telling our seven son at home, which breaks our heart that we use this language, but it is what it is. I think threes are really good at playing school. They know what's required of them. They know how to be successful at it, and they just do it. They plug in and go. I think sevens, I don't know if if this is all sevens, but it's certainly true for our seven, are not good at playing school. Right. They have an idea of what they kind of want out of the day, and it doesn't involve sitting in rows, listening when you're supposed to listen, only talking when you're supposed to talk, and then someone hands you a worksheet that you don't want to do, and then you muster up the ability to do it. They find a way to skirt the stuff that they don't particularly care about 
in order to find a way to get to the things that they do care about. So I, to, to kind of support your, Absolutely. what you're saying, like the social immaturity part, yeah. I think in a school setting, it's the ability to play school or not. Yeah. And threes have it and sevens don't, That's in right. my opinion. That's right. And also think that sevens are not motivated by consequences. And part of this then has to do with orientation of time. And threes, sevens, and eights are always looking forward to what's going to happen next. And sevens, once they imagine what could happen next, they leave the present moment and head that direction, which means they don't finish things and they're easily bored. And it's just a, it's, it's tricky for a seven to get through a school day. Yeah, Sam was sick from school a couple days this week, and I'm terrified because we have, like, I emailed his teachers and I have all of the assignments that he missed. But Sam has a hard time staying present in what's going on during the day in classroom activities. Now I'm asking him to go back in the past, Uh which he has no um, want to be. Like, he he has no interest in in looking back that way to finish the assignments just to get back caught up to the present Even. so that he can continue to look to right. the future, which is what he wants to do. Exactly. So. Exactly. And the future for sevens is an imagined world that will not exist when they get there. It won't be like they imagined it. So then they just do half of what's required and imagine the next thing. That's that's just pessimism, what you just threw out there. <laughs> it won't be it if you take that attitude towards it, that's for sure. <laughs> that's so good. It's reality. What I'm talking over here is reality. All right, AIDS. I, I think the most difficulty for AIDS is that if they find themselves in a position where they know more than the adults or think they do, they have a better plan, and their plan's usually pretty good. They are quick thinkers, but here's the trick. Eights are not only thinking fast about what's happening right now, and they're not only thinking about the future, but they're problem solving in the future at the same time. So when uh, a teacher deals with a child who's an eight, that child, at least half the time, I think, and you feel free to correct me, has already imagined what they're going to say to the teacher, what the teacher's going to say back to them, and how they're going to solve that problem. So they're still a step ahead in their own heads. And I would add, they have the energy to do it and the confidence in themselves and the lack of fear of any conflict that that interaction might entail, which no other number on the Enneagram has that combination. No other number has it. And it's fascinating to me to think about the fact that eights can get so far out in the future that they're problem solving. It's, it's very difficult to catch up with that. And I think that confidence is misidentified by everybody, but in children, by teachers, as arrogance and as being insubordinate and rude. And I, I think very seldom is the intention to be rude or insubordinate. Agreed. My uh, grandmother used to call it being too big for your britches. Yep, and yep. I, I, that, I think that plays itself out that way, which is why I think that 
if you are a teacher of an aide or an authority figure of any kind of an aide, it's important to um, step it up, meaning they're testing you. They're testing your prowess in whatever capacity you find yourself as an authority figure, and you are where you are. You, you worked hard to get to where you are, right? So if you're a parent, like you, you put in the work to be a good parent. If you're a teacher, it's because it's what you chose to do and you studied and you're, you're, you're where you're supposed to be. So when you're tested, rather than saying, well, who do you think you are? And, um, and why are you questioning me? And what's the problem? Being able to kind of stand firm in your own beliefs and say, I understand what you're talking about kind of stand toe to toe and then be able to provide explanation for whatever it is that Mm -hmm. you're doing. And then every once in a while, be able to say, this is what we're doing because you're you child and I'm me adult and eights respect that. Yeah, they do. And so here's my next question for you. I don't have any idea what the answer is. (laughs) Am I correct that if a teacher is going to step out in the hall or work with one kid or have a substitute the next day, that they are most likely to pick a child to be the helper and they're going to pick based on their own number. I think they're going to pick a one, a two, a three, or an eight. I would agree with that um, because they need to understand that things are going to operate the same way that they normally do. So some consistency that things are going to be right. Right. So some, some correctness and then for those who choose to test what is, then somebody who can kind of have the uh, confidence to be able to speak up for the behalf of the whole class and for the teacher who's not there. You got so a question? What us? are some, well, we've got the original question still. So what are some ways to identify that aggressive stance? I think just to go back to, to Suzanne, what you said earlier, just a really simple way to kind of view things to identify um, in any particular scenario, your withdrawing kiddos are going to take a step back and your dependent stance kiddos are going to take a step forward and your aggressive stance kiddos are just going to kind of stand independent and kind of take it all in and then decide what they're going to do next. And sometimes that's moving, it's charging straight forward and ahead. And sometimes it's saying, that's not my deal. That's your deal. But I don't feel the need to take a step back. I just don't feel the need to, necessarily engage. I agree with all that. And I would add that I think aggressive stance kids are always ahead there. You can recognize who's on to the next thing, the next event of the day, the next assignment, where are we going with this? I think they're always wanting to know what's okay. What's next. And I think they want to know that in the middle of what's now. And I would suspect that they're um, told to wait or we'll get there or you'll know when we get there. And I don't think that's the healthiest response. I think it's okay for them to know what's next. Right? And I, I think it's their business because they so quickly finish what's now, if they're going to. If a seven hasn't finished, it's not because they didn't have time. It's not because they didn't know the answers. It's because they're not going to finish. So that's problematic. Yeah. 
I, I think just a couple more quick things. And that is, it's, it's a little bit of reiteration of what we talked about, but three sevens and eights are also very fast processors. So yeah. they're, I think often frustrated yeah. with the rest of us who take longer. And I think a delineation for processing for ones, twos and sixes in the dependent stance, they verbally process a lot. Yeah. Three sevens, eights process, don't verbally process and they do it at an infinitely higher speed. So you can, you know, your three, seven and eight kiddos might get a little more frustrated with your one, two and six mm -hmm. when they're doing that. It's like, get there faster kind of a thing. Yep. And I would add that I think the withdrawing stance, observe everything before they step in. The adults, the other kids, then they find a place to strategically insert uh -huh. yeah. either verbally or physically and then they kind of step in and almost unnoticed. You know, they don't make any noise when they do that. Yeah. They just kind of slide into a spot. Yeah. I know I've shared this story before on the podcast, but I love the Saturday morning. Whitney and I are working in the living room and Jolie just woke up and she walks out still rubbing her eyes. And the first words out of her mouth are, what are we doing after this? Yeah. Like, we <laughs> What is this? You just woke up. Yeah. <laughs> what are we yeah. doing after this? Yep. What's next? This is a perfect segue to the next question. Um, we've talked about this. We touched on it some clearly, but the question is, how do we effectively motivate students based on their orientation to time? So aggressive stance, the future, dependent stance, the present, withdrawing stance, the past. And I, I imagine that every teacher conference is how do we motivate the students? I'm going to start with the aggressive stance and orientation to time being the future because other than concern, that's the most foreign stance to me as a dependent stance person. And I think what motivates all three numbers is not a reward system based on if you do this, then this is next, but an understanding that the process to get to do the next thing is to do this thing well. And you really have to hold back everybody, adults too. So I literally, when I'm teaching the Enneagram and I'm watching sevens, and I often teach sevens last because I often start with eights, I'm aware that in their heads, the sevens, if I'm teaching for four hours, the sevens have been gone since the first 90 minutes. Their bodies are in the room, but they're not. And so part of it is how do you motivate people to stay present because what's happening in the present moment stays interesting. And that's the ticket is I think fast and I do fast. So after I get that done and I'm waiting for everybody else. What am I supposed to do? What would you have me do? So I was thinking about this the other day. I can remember having teachers in middle school where there was always a bonus. Always. And you could do the bonus question in class or you could do it for homework if you wanted extra points. And I bet that keeps aggressive numbers there because they want the extra points doing the bonus question because they for sure don't want to take it home for homework. And then they are still engaged instead of, because what's next often is doesn't happen for an hour. 
then what have you got left to do but get in trouble or boss other people around or right now i don't mean that disrespectfully it's like there's a gap in leadership here even if you're a first grader all right i'm done with this now what do you want me to do and if it's not no plan then i'm gonna play yeah, and I think also maybe keeping the energy high is important for three, sevens, and eights. Mm-hmm. Those whose orientation time is the future. Um, and we, with our seven at home, we use the phrase work hard, play hard all the time. Because obviously in his head, he just wants to play all the time. So we're trying to incentivize the ability and and the understanding that it is okay to play, but you got to do some stuff to get there first, right? right? Got to do the thing you have to do in order to do the thing you want to do. And if maybe you can see the light at the end of the tunnel since he's forward looking anyway, that might be a motivating factor. Okay, so now we're going to keep walking it back. The dependent stance, oriented to the present moment. I think the way to motivate every number in the dependent stance is with praise and affirmation. Do you agree with that? I would. I think they're all dealing with their own kinds of thoughts and feelings that are based upon the here and now. And if they are acknowledged for the 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 way in which they're dealing with all of that, then it will help bring up the best in them. Part of it is tell me I'm wanted, tell me I'm good, and tell me I'm safe, and I'll perform for you all day. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this sounds silly, but... I would guess that for aggressive numbers, uh, a happy face on your paper means nothing. To the one, two, six dependent stance, excellent, exclamation part, proud of you. That is the motivator to get that again. I want that again. Yeah, and I would think one step further, not only tell me those things, help me believe it for myself. That's right. right. Walk me there. Yep, yep. Withdrawing stance, oriented to the past. I think that there are times when we have to change the word orientation to tethered. And I think this is one of the places to do that because fours, fives, and nines as students in school are not always looking to the past, but they're tethered to the past and they, they can't go far from there. It's like, that's what happened. So that's what I already know. And that is what is going to help me avoid conflict, uh, manage my own feeling stream, which is very difficult for fours. They are having so many feelings at one time, they don't know what to grab. And, you know, nines have a problem continuing to pay attention every second. So I think that their their, uh, sense of themselves has to do with what's happened before, and I think that's how you motivate them. Remember when you did this? Remember how great that was? Remember how that worked out? I think those lines motivate those kiddos. What do you think? I You're agree. one of them. Yeah, I agree. I, I think I mean, we used the word latitude and, and the allowance to, to process a little bit more slowly mm-hmm. to kind of get there in their own time, but I think what you said is, is spot on. While allowing that to take place, affirming in them that they have the ability to be present and to look towards the future Mm -hmm. because they were successful in the past, which is where they're looking as well. Yeah. So you're kind of looking back with them and, and giving them the confidence to, in themselves to know that whatever, 
the present and the future holds, while anxiety riddled for them, it is, um, they can get there because you're, you're kind of coaxing them there and not forcing maybe. I think that, or expecting. Sure. And I, I also think that one of the most, maybe the most important gift we have to offer the kids in each stance, regardless of age, is for the withdrawing stance. I think it's really, really important to remember to say to them over and over, what are you doing? What do you think we should do? What do you want to do? What would be the next thing to do? Any doing questions you can ask the withdrawing stance, one-on-one, will be superb. And I think even though it's counterintuitive with the dependent stance, it's really important to ask them over and over, well, what do you think? What do you think? What do you think about that? Do you really think that's it? All kinds of thinking questions. And then it's real important, even though it doesn't seem like it's a piece of the school day, it's very important to ask threes, sevens, and eights what they're feeling. And one of the reasons it's so important is because you can lose touch with how they're living out their day in the classroom if you don't ask them what they're feeling about the assignment, about other things, about life, and find other words besides feeling. You know, how does that make you feel or uh, whatever questions you might come up with that bring up what they are repressed in. That makes all the difference in the world for how they will perform. And I wonder for threes and eights specifically, when you're talking about feeling, to ask them to acknowledge maybe the feelings of others. Right. Absolutely. And how that could kind of play in. I mean, threes are kind of doing that already. Um, sorry, I'm at sevens and eights. Sevens and eights. Threes are already doing that already. I was feeling really good about myself <laughs> for a second. I was like, so yeah. I've got that yeah. I've got that on board. Sorry. Yeah. But but I think that that sort of helps because I don't think they go there very often. No. Obviously, they have a hard time with their own feelings and right. so certainly feelings right. of others as well. But if that's just kind of brought up and they're asked to acknowledge, maybe that can can help them bring it up all together. Well, and I think the reason it's so important is because they don't own or integrate. They aren't able to integrate the disconnect between them and other people. And that becomes kind of a tape that's playing in the background, right? Seven's thinking that there's a disconnect because they're always in trouble for things that don't make any sense. And eight's thinking there's a disconnect because they're doing what they've been asked to do and they're doing it well. It's like, how come that's not working? Right. Right. And it's because of what's lacking. Yeah. Billy, when you were talking a minute ago about, well, it was when you were addressing how to help the withdrawing stance. I thought to myself, that would be so hard for me if I were the teacher. So can we flip this now and kind of point out some areas? What was the phrase? Uh, 